With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to another episode of the Limited Upside Podcast. I actually checked. Today is Tuesday, September 22nd. I, I knew I would forget the day, so I checked. Uh, we have we have a little bit of a lull in both the NBA and the WNBA playoffs, the latter for reasons that were not planned, and let's hope everything's okay with the COVID test for the Seattle Storm. But it's kind of been a nice opportunity to pause, reflect on some things we've seen and this week we're going to talk a lot about the the Eastern Conference Finals. We're not going to focus too much on the Western Conference Finals. I've got Ben here with me. Ben, how are you? I'm in California. I made it across the country. I'm not on fire. And uh, honestly, as I was saying right before the pod, now that I'm on Pacific Coast time, I can watch our games and go to sleep early. And uh, and that's a real big advantage to uh, to my sports uh, consumption habits. So I'm, I'm stoked to be back out three hours behind the rest of the world. All right, good. So now you can talk about things without just bullshitting them because you actually be watching. That's terrific. Um, right. Speaking of someone who is on fire, our guest today, somewhere between Jamal Murray and Tyler Hero on the scale of breakout playoff stars, the uh, Kaius Duncan now with basketballnews.com, who finally has kind of developed a really great following that he's always deserved, really breaks down film terrifically. You should check out his scouting reports on all these teams. Used to work for Five Reasons Sports, uh, a Miami Heat site. Uh, so he's very familiar with uh, Heat culture, which is this mysterious elixir that we're going to hopefully figure <laughs> out what the hell it is. Uh, Nikias, how are you? I am doing well, man. Just living life. Uh did not know what day it was either. I, I swore today was Wednesday, but I guess it's not. <laughs> so, uh, that uh, definitely changes what I'm doing today. But uh, I am doing pretty well. So wait, you you thought that this was a Wednesday podcast and you would have time thus on Wednesday to talk to us. But now it's Tuesday and you still have time to talk to us. <laughs> correct, correct. <laughs> I was just like, okay, cool. Let's see if, uh, if mine's going to go 3-1. It's going to be a tie series, whatever, whatever. Got another day of anxiety, so that's gonna be cool. Yeah, would you you would you call yourself a Heat fan, um, or have you kind of divorced your Heat fandom from? Because you don't even live in Miami, um, but this is sort of the team you've always followed. I mean, what would you call yourself? Uh, I mean, I I'm still a fan. I can't fan out like I used to for obvious reasons. 
But I mean, that's still the team. I, I mean, I've followed the team since I was in middle school. Uh, and that feels like so long ago now, since 2020 is just the longest year ever. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that, that team's always going to have a soft spot for me. Uh, I mean, they're the reason I'm here, honestly. Uh, I got my start, you know, doing some amateur blogging on Facebook and stuff. And like, that was the team I was covering the most. So, I mean, that's, you know, I have to be, I'm going to be objective, but I mean, that's still the team I'm going to have a soft spot for. Who were the Heat players or what was the team uh, built when, when you started following them? What, what was that team like? That was Shaq and Wade. Okay. All right. So a good time to, to, to figure out <laughs> yeah, some Heat fandom. <laughs> so, well, so, actually so. makes it better. That makes this conversation better because you've had to go through the lull to get back to this high. So. What, what lull? Uh, they had like one year of a lull. I mean, they, I mean, when I say low, I mean, like, they weren't the title contender like they are right now again. This is the first year since the Shaq and Wade teams. Yeah. What about, I don't know, LeBron. Oh, yeah, I mean, LeBron, yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about well, my, that just like, Bro, that's, that's completely right. That's, a, that's completely in my head right there. Like, thinking about that era as a side, like, I don't know. I just think of LeBron's eras as LeBron's eras. I don't even associate him with teams anymore, and that's terrible. That's on me. That's what he forced LeBron's been over the years. It just kind of defines everything. Yeah, I mean, he's the one that's chosen to move around. So that's if that's his legacy, that's his fault. Um, yeah. But I think he's fine with it. Anyway, um, so. yeah, down years. They had one year in the lottery. Like, like, get out of here. You know, the Wizards, they've had down years. I don't know if they've had an up year yet. Um, I think it's all down years. But, yeah, no, I, I, I love that answer about the fandom because it, it reminds me a lot of how I came up covering the Wizards. And I think there's a tendency for a lot of writers to just renounce their fandom when they get into it, especially as they see more of how the sausage is made and that there's nothing really magical about their team in a lot of regards as compared to other teams. But I think that it's actually important to retain your fandom, not because for rooting interest purposes, but because I just think that fans notice things differently, have more invested, have more sort of ability to notice sort of the the little things and, and really ha- be in touch with the people that they're writing with in a way that I think if you renounce your fandom, you sort of lose that. So, you know, I'm still a Wizards fan and I will always be a Wizards fan, um, even though like I have less stake in them winning. So I, I totally buy what you're saying about um, – about your fandom in Miami. I think it's, I mean, I think it's something that like we should actually be hanging on to more so than something that we should renounce. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people will tell writers like, Oh, you got to give up your fandom or like, Oh, you're a fan anymore. But I don't know. I think it adds your, to your insight if you know how to spin it the right way. Yeah. Like that. I mean, the way that I've come come up watching the heat, uh, it was rooting for the heat. Then it was covering the heat. Um, Just being able to dig in depth with them has helped me with other teams because it kind of helps me, I mean, I know what to look for in terms of like uh like pattern recognition with sets and stuff. Um, the NBA is a copycat lead, so a lot of the base stuff Miami runs, other teams run as well. They have their own little twist and stuff. So it kind of gives me a baseline from that standpoint. It kind of help definitely helps with a film regard. Yeah, you sort a of well run, yeah, organization with a good coach and a good GM and things like that. <laughs> the, the copycat component works better when you are the cat that's being copied. Yeah, so how the how the Sixers copy that cat? They copy that cat well. <laughs> no, we ran it over with a car. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but Elton Brand's fixing these. But it's funny you mentioned. <laughs> oh, let's see. 
the the camera doesn't necessarily capture how much Ben laughed at that statement. Um, It's just because Elton's got all the best PR people working for him, so his source is the one talking to Shams and defining the narrative right now. But the team is a fucking dumpster fire. Speaking of defining the narrative, I'll tell you what the Miami Heat have defined very well is this concept of heat culture uh, as like sort of an overarching message of how they run their team. And in light of how they've made it through to two games up two one up on the in the Eastern Conference Finals from the five seed, there's been a lot of talk of what is heat culture? Uh, what is this magical sort of thing that gets Jimmy Butler, who really flamed out in his last two stops as a superstar, suddenly he's the perfect fit. What is this magical elixir that gets Duncan Robinson playing the way he does? What develops rookies like Kendrick Nunn and Tyler Hero? What's turned Ban out of bio into a superstar? All this stuff. Nikias, what is heat culture? Uh, it is funny to hear it talked about like it's some magical thing. Uh, I think more than anything, it's it's stability and accountability, which again they aren't like super magical concepts. But Pat Riley came to Miami in '95. He's kind of set the standard on what he wants his teams to look like from a defensive. Um, from the defensive end, just from an effort standpoint, um, the rules he has in place for getting guys to hit an ideal body fat percentage, um, the commitment to working out. And from there, once you have once you have that kind of standard set from the top, it's easier for guys underneath that to kind of follow into that. And that's how he ends up handpicking Eric Spolster, basically. And Eric Spolster is kind of – he was a grinder kind of like Pat Riley was. Um, wasn't a player like Riley was. But kind of start, you know, started in the video room, um, just an insane level of attention to detail there, um, a lot of hard work. So, you know, Spoke kind of embodies what Riley's looking for. And then from there, you kind of pick out the players that also embody that. And I think, I mean, that also kind of permeates through like the scouting department and stuff. They're all lifers. They're all grinders. That's how they're able to kind of hone in on what a Miami Heat player looks like. And then kind of find the guys that have the ideal skills to kind of help, um, you know, accentuate the other guys on the roster. That's how you get a Duncan Robinson to where he's, I mean, Spoke called him one of the best shooters in the world before preseason started, which seems like 20 years ago. (laughs) And that's Duncan Robinson coming off small sample shot, like 28% from three the year before in like a handful of games. And Spoke when preseason's like, oh, he's one of the best shooters in the world. He just has to prove it now. And just, you know, giving him those kind of reps in summer league a few months prior, giving him ball, ball handling reps and stuff, pushing him not just to give him like this wide canvas of do this, this, this is like, hey, you're good at this. We're going to make you go from good to great, from great to excellent or whatever. And so it's just kind of that. It's just kind of the whole principle of just, you know, knowing what you are, having that goal set. You know, everyone just kind of falls in line from there. That sort of is, and again, not to transition at all, but like to, to kind of tackle onto what you're saying. Uh, and kind of like, it feels like you almost describe Jimmy Butler as a player and as a personality in describing Pat Riley and Spo and kind of the route that the, the organization has taken, right? Like it, it seems like Jimmy is, a, is the perfect superstar for this team because he's an extension of that philosophy mm-hmm. and, and kind of embodies that as a player on and off the court. Would, would you agree on that? Uh, yeah, and that's why I mean, I mean, reports have come out. Butler has said it like Jimmy Butler wanted to end up in Miami before he even landed in uh Philadelphia. Like, he's uh, he's kind of 
he's always kind of had eyes on that organization as an organization that fits who he is. And, you know, when Miami got out to their hot start earlier in the regular season, um, reporters asked them, hey, what what is it about Miami? Why are you so happy in Miami? It's just like I'm allowed to be myself. I can just come in, focus on basketball. I can hold other guys accountable without worrying about feelings or anything like that. It's just very much we're going to put on our hard hats, go to work, work harder than the other team, win, rinse, repeat. And it's cliche, but that's just what the organization is, and that's just the standard that they've set. What I find funny about that is that this is an organization that's in like the one of the glitziest cities in the country, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this is not like a hard hat. Like you, would, they almost have a small market persona in like one of the glitziest mm-hmm. cities that everybody wants to be in, and they've made it work. It's so funny how that kind of has played out. Ration of the heat, yeah. It's just, it's just so weird. It, it, the other thing that I think is a is interesting about it is that I mean all this stuff about stability and accountability and one guy at the top and you have your type of guys there are two things that I think are really interesting about it and one of which is I think really important for understanding this team is you know a lot of places that sort of have that sort of mantra it gets stale after a while you're not bringing in enough new blood. You're not evolving. You're sort of staying as the type of team you are. Um, but Miami has found a way to kind of change with the times with superstars, with grinders, and now with this team that is kind of an interesting mix of the two. It, and, and then that leads me to the thing that is sort of where it plays out. Uh, there's an interesting Hollinger piece about this this morning on The Athletic where – you know, this plays out most in their conditioning, right? I mean, they're the team that is in the best shape. You, you reference their body fat uh, requirements. They, don't they have, like, sort of a, a grueling conditioning test you have to pass if you mm-hmm. want to even play for the team? Um, so they have. this has been a staple. In the past, it almost seems like Hollinger's point was interesting in that in the past, really, prior to this run, going back to Alonzo Morning years, going to um, – the quick end of the Heat, the Shaq Wade dynasty, going to uh, LeBron's years, this is a team that peaked very early and ran out of gas. And that is also how you would define Riley's teams of the Lakers, is that they just, they work too hard almost. You know, but this Miami team has been known for just, they're in better shape than the Celtics. And they're they're the ones outlasting the Celtics in this series. They're the ones that outlasted the Bucks in this series. And it's actually the conditioning thing that was kind of a bugaboo has now completely flipped on the other side of its head. Now suddenly this conditioning is what's caused them to have the endurance to keep forward. Mm-hmm. I, what What is that shift about? I mean, do you, buy, do you buy that? First of all, do you buy that explanation? And second of all, if you do, like, how did that change for the Heat uh, where their conditioning now is for the long haul and not something that burns them out too early? Um. To that effect, I'm not really sure. I mean, I do think in general the conditioning has been a big part of what they do. Um, it was, I think, during the LeBron era, you really felt it because they had the conditioning thing in place. They were already top heavy, so you didn't really have the depth to kind of complement those guys consistently. And on top of that, if you're looking on the on-course perspective, Miami was playing one of, if not the most aggressive defense mm. in the league in terms of trapping all over the place. So once you get into those long playoff runs, two, three, four years in a row. It, it is easier to burn out. I think a shift to a more conservative defensive scheme kind of helped in that regard as well. 
Um, and then without having a star in place or not a star in his prime in place after the LeBron years, I think it was a little easier to kind of lean on depth a little bit more because they had to. And now we're coming back full circle. Now I think the conditioning has definitely helped with their offensive system. It's basically death by a million cuts at this point. So being able to run that system and still have wind at the end of games, I think has helped them quite a bit. And as you've seen in the East Conference Finals so far, Boston to get out to these larger, these big leads. But once the fourth quarter comes around, it seems like Miami has more wind to execute better. And that's just kind of been the tale of the series so far, even though it's 2-1 after that game three loss. That's been the story, not just of the Celtics series, the Milwaukee series too. I mean, game three, like Milwaukee just died in in that th- in that fourth quarter and honestly game three of the eastern conference finals like boston nearly blew that one too <laughs> you know they just kept going and going and going um i don't know it's something they have to do i think you made a really good point about the scheme it, it seems like that spolstra has become a little bit more flexible in what defense he's playing uh in particular you said that they had got more conservative at different points they've sprinkled in that zone that just killed boston in game two um, which has been a big part of it. They're not necessarily doing the blitz, like you said, like those LeBron teams blitz and just fly everywhere. That's kind of what their offense is. Um, and I, I think maybe some of it has to do with how the game has changed. I mean, the game's just played more outside now. You know, mm-hmm. guys like – I think guys are at a different level of conditioning just on their baseline. I mean, was there a player like Duncan Robinson in 2008? Anyone was was anyone built like that? I mean, I can't really think of one. Certainly, there weren't players like Bam Adebayo in two thousand. And I mean, this is a guy who's just such a different type of beast. Um, so, I mean, maybe it's some it's like Robinson's like a new Peja or something like that. Where like it's a quick, it's like an always ready trigger, kind of a bigger dude. Like he's not a small player and also like in robinson's case too he's got pedigree it's not like he came from some actually he did come from some super small mid-major i was gonna say not not just a mid-major division three williams college part of the nescac a rival of brandeis university do you know what they are they're the f's Uh, yeah i do i absolutely do i went to williams to cover a d3 ncaa tournament game when i was in college yeah, yeah. So anyhow, point is like so maybe he, he did come from someone, but then ended up in Michigan. So there was some, you know, relationship to understanding this kid could play. I do think there's like a, a funny dynamic here playing out, which is that I, the NBA for a long time, the winning sauce was like you had to know who the player or players to maybe two. And then it got to be three at one point, but one or two guys who were going to get you 30. And that that was an incredibly integral part of any championship team. There had to be that player who could get in the 30s, 40s even. I mean, you see it with the Nuggets, 50s, and it came a couple different games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the idea that there's that scoring threat, whereas with the Heat, they don't have to look for that. It just happens that they have a couple guys in the 20s every game. Um, multiple players, maybe five guys over 10. Um, this idea that maybe we've gone in a full or a half circle, a 180 here, and that you don't need to have – that 30. In fact, it actually makes you much harder to defend and game and you know, schematically plan against. Yeah, you get you know the other direction. 180, Mike. I, I was just that. trying to figure um, out if like the term was yeah. right. Yes, you were right. Yeah, a yeah, 180. Yes. Yeah, and so it's you know, and, and in a lot of ways, again, this reflects on Jimmy, who's a superstar who can get you 14 and affect the game as much as anyone getting you 40. Mm-hmm. And so like he's in a lot of ways, sort of that the I mean to use the the parallel, but like the Draymond glue guy leader doesn't need to be the shooter, but at the same time, 
can be that isolation score in the final minute to get you that bucket, as we've seen multiple times in these playoffs and, and last year for the Sixers and the different points in his career, uh, uh, you know, not for the Timberwolves, but uh, for the Bulls. So it's like, you know, this idea that we are rethinking and constantly in these like almost two to three year windows, rethinking the structure of a championship winning team. And this, this, this is going to come to a head if we get a heat Lakers final, because you're going to have the team with two, you know, apex guys, two of the five best players in the league who are in that 30, whatever range, every game playing against this full flight team. Um, and I'm curious if you kind of think that like, number one, Pat Riley kind of saw this coming as he built this team out. And, and number two, like, if you could kind of elaborate a little bit here on, on, on why it's so successful with this core group of players, it's seeing a guy like Dragic with his resurgence and a guy like Bam both taking massive steps in, into the, uh, you know, stardom slash Dragic just pointing out why he was an all-star, what, five years ago now? Five Six, years ago? I think. Six years ago. Right. So like, how does that, how do these gaps happen? Um, and, and give me a little bit on that, guys. Um, I would just say, um, just backing up a little bit. I think that's been probably the most impressive part of Jimmy Butler's season in Miami, just from a leadership perspective. He has been about empowering the rest of the roster since day one, um, even before the season started, you know, having Tyler Hero room with them in Chicago, um, constantly calling Bam. I mean, he's been calling Bam the Heat's best player all year long um, in that regard. Um, he's had a career year in terms of like assists per games, but even beyond that, like he has – kind of he's taking the foot off the gas not even in a bad way but in the first half of games just like facilitating the offense letting bam work through things with, at the elbow um working those dribble handoffs with the shooters he's kind of operating as the handoff guy as well um just letting those guys know that hey we need every last one of you i know i can take over whenever i need to but for us to get to where we need to go you need to know that you can do that too and i think those are the kind of habits that he's helped build throughout the regular season. And now you're seeing it in the playoff time. Now Goran Dragic can take over whenever he needs to. Tyler Hero has been knocking down big shots all postseason long. Um, Bam Adebayo has turned multiple playoff games on its head. Even if he's had like a 12 or 14 point game, he'll have a stretch in a, in a quarter to where he he's taking bigs off the bounce or he's operating as the role man, just kind of dominating that way. Or if teams switching smalls on him, he's out jumping two, three, four guys for offensive rebounds and changing it that way. And that's kind of a reflection of Jimmy Butler just kind of grinding things out, of seizing the moment when it's there and not worrying about stepping on anyone's toes. I think that's been huge. Um, if we do get to a Heat-Lakers finals, uh, I think it's it's definitely an interesting contrast of styles there because, you know, the, the Lakers would have the two best players in the series, but then a strong argument could be made that Miami would have the next four or five Player, best player, maybe there. more actually, maybe, yeah, maybe more. So, I think <laughs> yep. those principles are really going to come into play. If you have Bam on Anthony Davis, if you have Jimmy Butler guarding or trying his best to guard LeBron, nobody can really guard him. But you know, if they can make those guys five, six, seven percent worse, and then you look at the, at the edges that Miami has elsewhere on the roster, I think it makes for a really interesting series. We still have to get there, um, of course. Uh, and I think someone asked about, um, I think it was Gringo underscore the G asked about, you know, tougher matchup for the Lakers in the finals, Boston or Miami. We touched a little bit on that in that question. But let's drill down a little bit into the series that is going on right now, the Celtics series, because that's far from over, obviously. Miami up two to one. Game four is on Wednesday. And I think maybe Jimmy Butler's sort of, deferral to the rest of his team is a good place to start because 
Miami, as we talked about, like has been coming from behind in a lot of these games, really for two rounds, using their conditioning. There is a school of thought that perhaps Butler waited too long in game three to get mm-hmm. himself going, that he needs to sort of be more aggressive to score from the jump uh, in the rest of this series. Um, do you agree with that? Uh, I think he definitely needs to be more aggressive. I don't think he can do what he did in game three to where he wasn't really handling the ball. I don't think he has to come out and drop and have a 12 point first quarter, but I do think he needs to do a little bit more of getting downhill and helping free those other guys because Miami comes into games with an opening script of getting Duncan Robinson hot first and then kind of working with Bam from there. And I think that's fine, but there still needs to be more possessions to where Jimmy's running a pick and roll with Bam or with one of the guards to got to get a smaller guy switched on him. Um, running pick and rolls with Jay Crowder. If Boston's going to continue to stash Campbell Walker on him, like we saw in game three, get downhill. And even if he's not getting to the free throw line or scoring, he's going to draw attention. That's going to make it easier for those other guys to get going. And I think that still fits with what Jimmy Butler wants to do in the beginning of the games, kind of get the other guys going, kind of pick his spots there. So he'll be ready for the second half or the fourth quarter. I guess part of that too is like, do you do you see a world where that it, there's an adjustment in the first quarter of this next game because of the way that the way that game three went? Like it's essentially Boston getting out hot, maybe getting the the three point shooters hot to start the game might be the place where things do change uh, strategically in, in in game four. Given that Boston seems to be winning the first and second quarters of the series, so you know, so kind of kind of you know double digits. Yeah. I think so. I think in general, Miami's in trouble when Boston's able to play with pace. Uh, Miami has been a grinded out team, even in the pace and space era with the big three heat, the heat never really ranked highly in pace, not a perfect metric, but it's just Miami wants to play just to take a suppose and they want to play with a purpose. They don't necessarily want to play fast. So I think getting Jimmy Butler downhill, getting to, you know, drawing pressure, um, drawing rotations and getting easier catch and shoot looks will help Miami settle in. And if he is getting to the free throw line, that's going to slow the game down. That helps Miami set up their half court defense. That you know allows. I mean, if they're able to get set, that helps the effectiveness of the zone. If they want to continue to go to that, um, that helps. You know, if they see what's coming from from an opening place perspective or whatever, they're more set to switch stuff like they've been doing, especially since the trade deadline. They've been a switch heavy team. So I think it makes sense for them to just go more, just to get Jimmy the ball a little bit more and get him going early. Yeah, you mentioned that pace is such an imperfect metric for speed. I think Miami's a really good example of that too, you know, where they play with so much pace in the half court, but they don't want it to meet up and down game and transition. Butler's getting the free throw lines a big key because if it is, that Jalen Brown does what he does in game three, which mm-hmm. he totally killed them in the secondary break. The other the other part about Jimmy as a scorer or Jimmy is more being more aggressive that's important is that in game three, for the first time really all playoffs, Goran Dragic and Jay Crowder had off nights. Mm-hmm. Um, and the former was spurred very much by a matchup switch, putting Marcus Smart on Dragic, which I think was really successful for Boston. And the latter, I mean, like, Jay Crowder has was been shooting out of this world for a while. Like, maybe this he's going coming back to earth. Um, do you think that that Smart matchup changed to put Smart in multiple ways? To put uh, Marcus on, uh, on Dragic and sort of now you got Kemba on Crowder. Like, what's the strategy for Miami to attack that in game four? Uh, I think they, again, they're going to have to play a little bit more purpose in the half court. I think they're going to have to really hunt out switches and then attacking those switches quickly. 
because they can get Kemba switched into the action, but Boston is so good at those scram switches to get them out, get them out of there. And Miami's kind of been trying to settle into posting up those uh, mismatches, and that just that just gives Boston room to kind of switch out of it when they need to. So I think going more pick and roll and then immediately attacking after that is really going to put pressure on Boston's defense. Get to the line like that. I love the scram switches. It's almost like they're playing a hack game with Kemba Walker, like you know, like sort of the the hack game on the jumbotron where it's like he's not under this one. He's not. <laughs> The fact that neither of you are really laughing at me suggests that I, this analogy is very flawed. <laughs> no, I understand. Are you, are you like a nineteen twenty five carnival? Uh, no, like bike? no, like the it, like I know, like nobody goes to games anymore because of the pandemic. I know exactly they, what you mean. But you know, at the pan, before the pandemic happens, they've got like sort of the hat, the like sort of the balls under this hat, and they spring them around, and you don't know exactly where the ball is unless you really follow him and like kind of really pay attention to like, oh, we got to get. This one, it's like how Kemba Walker and Scram switches. I get the, I get the visual. It's the cup and ball game, man. It's like a, you is know, that what it's, it's called? It, it's, a, it's an yeah, it's an age old, you know, like. Isn't it a hat game? It's a hat game. I thought. Hat cup, anything you can cover a ball with, you know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it could be it could be a shell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shell game. That's it. You know what? It's shell a shell game. game. It's a shell there you game. Go. Yeah. No, Boston did a very good job with the show. I mean, it's so funny watching these two teams play. I, I thought this with the Toronto series too. It's like it's almost like they're playing. They play a shell game on all ends. It's really remarkable to watch if you really. I mean, the guys are really good at sort of illustrating what's happening off the ball and why it matters on the ball. You know, there's almost like a shell game being played on all ends where one team is trying to find a mismatch or trying to find this sort of vulnerable spot, whether it's in the zone they. They got that like two two one zone that Miami has where they put their worst defenders in the corners, and so the mm-hmm. shell game is like, can we get there? And then for Boston, it's almost like the how do we find Duncan Robinson on defense? How do we find Goran Dragic? And the winner of that shell game is who ends up winning the game. You know, it seemed like Duncan Robinson held up okay on defense, but I I do think that them going at him affected his shot in a way. That is hard to quantify. Um, are we going to see more? Do we think? I mean, this also goes back to what Nikias was saying about pace. Like, it, if you're out in transition, it's a lot easier to find that mismatch. If you're able to grind down the half court, it's a lot harder. I mean, is there a reason to be worried about Miami's defense if you're a Heat fan and just the ability of the Boston to find those mismatches? Or is this something that they can fix? Uh, I think there's slight concern. I mean, I for you know, full disclosure, I picked Boston in six before the series. I just didn't think Miami was going to be able to defend Boston well enough. Um, the zone, I expect them to go zone. I didn't expect it to be as effective as it was in game two. And they kind of got turned on its head in game three. Boston did a much better job of distorting Miami's zone, getting into the paint, getting some better looks. And Miami just really didn't have much of an answer. So at the point of attack, defense has been an issue for Miami all year long. Um, with Kendrick Nunn, when he was starting during the regular season, with Goran Dragic, as hard as he fights, that's why when they do go to zone, they're putting Goran Dragic at the bottom. They put him on the outside. They want to make sure that he's not being attacked. And if he is, you know, that side is being overloaded to kind of help him and get him out of there, get it up, get him out of those situations. So uh, Boston has definitely figured some things out. Even at the end of game two, where they weren't converting those shots, they were still getting good looks, kind of getting like Marcus Smart in the middle of the zone. Um, Gordon Hayward's return to game three definitely helped in that regard. Mm. So if the Heat can't go zone and really muck up the game that way, it's just going to be Miami continuing to switch, I believe. 
And if they're able, to, if Austin's able to hunt out Goran Dragic and Duncan Robinson on switches, that just puts so much strain on the rest of the defense. It's just going to, it's going to end up coming down to well, we hope Boston misses, and we can kind of flip mm-hmm. it that on the other end. I wonder too, like how much, how much of the Heat's attacking of of the Celtics was predicated upon what they saw from success in Toronto with that series, because there was so much exposure of the Celtics in the, in the Raptors series that you don't usually get in any, cause it was just such a strategic coach on coach, you know, cause yeah. of the, the players themselves were so evenly matched. I wonder how much the Celtics exposed in that series and how much the heat picked up. And now that we're coming into game four, this series is starting to have its own X's and O's relationship yeah. where the first couple of games were predicated upon the, the first or the previous series. Yeah. certainly with the zone. I mean, Toronto had Boston struggle against Toronto zone and Miami zone is very different, but uh, that's a they struggled against Miami zone. That's a really good point. Um, and you know, Toronto. Th- there's also, I mean, th- to the point about exposure, like Boston has just played more games. Mm-hmm. Like Miami's just wrapped these series up so quickly, and their previous series was against a coach who didn't want to change what he did in the regular season, so there wasn't a whole lot to gain from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think they definitely uh, looked at what Toronto did with his own and kind of incorporated their own thing. And I think in general, it probably reinforced what Miami wanted to take away from a defensive perspective. Uh, Just seeing what Boston's offense looked like when Kimball Walker was in his cold stretch and how the zone actually kind of made that a bigger deal for Boston. And that's why Miami came out early in the series. Like, okay, we're going to trap these Kimball Walker pick and rolls. When they go into these double drag looks, we're going to switch a certain way. We're going to show high on another screen. We're going to make sure that he can't turn the corner because we cut off the head of the snake there. You know, it's it's like, okay, they have the wing talent, or at least they have the wing bodies to stay in front of a Tatum, to stay in front of a Jalen Brown. They might be better, but you can make those looks tough. But it all starts with making sure that Kimball can't get downhill, get into the paint. So I think – that Toronto City's kind of reinforced that notion of how important it is to slow down Kemba. Now, they haven't gone to a box and one like Toronto did on him. But not, to your point, you mentioned earlier that Miami had trouble containing the ball during the regular season. A large part of that was Nunn and Dragic struggling against point guards. Uh, those are the, the Kemba Walkers were the types of players that lit, boss, that lit Miami up this year. I'm trying to think of a few examples, but... Um, I think that's a fairly accurate statement. And then, yeah, I mean, the the zone eliminates that need. You, when you say double drag, just for listeners who under probably know what he's talking about, but just in case you don't, our friend Michael Pina wrote about this a couple weeks ago, where Boston will sort of come down with Walker on one side and there will be two screeners, a wing, and then a few feet later, a big screening for him. So it's like a double screen for him to go one way. And yeah, Miami's defended that very well in this series. Um, and Kemba's not quite himself, I think, because of the knee injury. But no, it's a big a big factor. Um, the other big factor for Boston in Game 3 was Gordon Hayward coming back. And I know that when we had Pina on the pot a couple weeks ago, Ben, we were talking about how we didn't think Hayward was as important to Boston as the narrative suggests. But in this series, it seems like he's pretty damn important. Um, is that like that? First of all, it gets you to Boston's uh, death lineup. What do we call that lineup? The Marcus Smart at the five lineup. We need a name for this. That's something not death lineup, but something like that. I've seen five leaf clover on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> like that's fine. I don't really know what you call it either. 
Seth, Seth Partnell, friend of the show uh, for the Athletic, calls it called it the Green New Deal, which I enjoyed. <laughs> oh, That's no. good. I like, although I like that. Although Gordon Hayward's presence in the Green New Deal is a little questionable. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Nice attack there. I, I mean, look, what does Gordon Hayward do? He allows for you to attack his own in a much more, you know, po- positive way and not as defensive, not as looking to take the shot that you're being given, but get the shot that you want. And it helps when you have a really well-respected shooter who's six foot seven or eight or whatever he is uh, on the court. Like you don't go in as much as own defense. There was a big difference between game two and game three just having Hayward's gravity to the ball in the game, you know, and his decision-making, to be honest, too. He's a pretty active, defense, underrated defensive player. He had a number of, of, you know, pretty intelligent plays where he, again, got the right shot for his team. I look at Hayward, too, as like a guy who I think at all times he's on some kind of scale of being over and underrated. And then mm-hmm. when you see his absence on the roster, you really get to kind of, you know, have that juxtaposition from a one game to the next, specifically in a playoff series like this, where, again, we talked about it. There's just so much X's and O's going on between the two coaches. And Hayward's a heck of a variable to pull out of your hat. You know, that again, hasn't played for what almost a month now, three, three plus weeks. When was the Sixers series? It feels like it was yeah, like seven. Over a month, over a month ago. Yeah. It feels like so, it was 20 years ago to use a common phrase that we've used on the yeah. show. I mean, to be honest, Mike, it didn't even happen. There was no Sixers series. Um, no, I'm just they kidding. forfeited, um, was, right? Yeah. They, they forfeited. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what happened. That's right. That's right. But uh, yeah, so like, I think just like he's not a random other guy. He's not your, you know, seventh man off the bench. And we're lucky that he's going to play some minutes. Like Hayward has, you know, a real respect factor in the league and a real gravity uh, for defensive players because of his ability to hit shots, both open and off the screen. So, um, yeah, I think I think maybe we underrated him a bit. But ultimately, too, one of the reasons was because Marcus Smart's been shooting like a, you know, a 40 percent three point clip which is a completely absurd percentage or, you know, it, for him. What, what did he shoot know, he's this probably, This year he's been better for sure. But this idea that he's now a volume three-point shooter with a high percentage is, is, feels a little off. And, and ultimately that's a big swing factor in any one of these games too. Oh, it was only 35%, but he shot six threes a game. Um, who else is on that overrated, underrated continuum? I'm kind of curious. Chris Middleton. Uh. Oh, yeah, your guy. <laughs> Oh boy, is it? It's uh, yeah. He's he's either Michael Jordan or he is uh, as Ethan Scolden called him, uh, swingman Mo Williams. So, <laughs> <laughs> shit, oh, that, that's actually pretty good. That's actually a good negative way to describe him. Championship man. He he was a point guard on a championship contender. When? Was there with the cat with the Cavs, wasn't he? Well, yeah, but isn't that isn't that the analogy that why you use it is that he's like sort of the yeah. the fake all star that LeBron played with, just like Chris is the fake all star Giannis plays with. Not doing Chris Middleton very much justice. Yeah. Uh, he's, yeah. he's a much better player than Mo Williams on both ends of the court. I agree, but yes, he's yeah. definitely yeah. one of them. Um, yeah. The last thing I want to talk about with this series and before we kind of move on to talk about other topics is um, something I noticed at the end of game three that I thought was fairly significant. And I'm quoting Nikias. I'm quoting you from your scouting report of Miami that you published before the series started. The Heat are going to need Bam Adebayo to be a scorer to win this series. He's talented enough to do it, but like Butler, he's much more comfortable being a connector. It seemed like he was looking to score a lot more at the end of game three. 
How much of a difference will that make for Miami? Is that like a significant, how significant a development is that? Um, I think that's huge because I think coming into the series, Bam was the one guy on the run. Uh, I mean, among like the starting lineup, Bam was the one guy that really had a true physical mismatch. And so you can argue if Jimmy Butler's better than Jason Tatum, but those, I mean, they're pretty light sized wings. Tatum moves well as a good defender. So it's not a super big advantage there. Um, same with Goran and Kemba. There's not a big advantage there. Bam versus Daniel Tice, even though Tice is underrated, Bam's a guy that can overpower him, and then he has the skill to beat him off the dribble if you feed him to. So, and with Boston switching as much as they do, um, that's going to leave Bam battling underneath with uh, Jalen Brown or with a Marcus Smart or a Kemba Walker if they can catch that matchup. So I think Bam had the ability to kind of influence actions in a way that the other Heat guys just didn't. And I think it's good that we saw in game three that he was more aggressive attacking on the block, attacking on the offensive glass, still getting busy as a pick and roller, um, just kind of forcing the issue there because he he's the one guy with the advantage there. Now, you also wrote in that preview that he's sort of like kind of a one-move type of player. When he attacks, he's kind of got – I think the way you put it, he doesn't have a ton of shake. You know, it's sort of the one inside-out move, and then he's there attacking, which makes him really a good fit for when uh, they're – running Robinson and he's slipping. Um, but is it, I mean, I, I would worry, I suppose that if you have him attack too much, that could be a problem. I saw some of that in the Indiana series, actually, you know, is that a worry too? Uh, I do think it kind of puts a strain on the transition defense. If he does miss and he, you know, he struggled scoring over smaller players this season at times. So I think if he does get those attacks over a smaller guy and then he's on the ground because he had an awkward finish, um, the body control has been a bit of an issue for him at times. Then you're looking at a five on four or four on three or something. And then your best or your most versatile defender is on the other side of the court. And that really hurts. And again, Miami just doesn't want to want a game to go into a track, turn to a trap meet anyway. So I think there is a little bit of worry there, but ultimately he kind of has to pulverize those mismatches when he gets them. That, uh, um, that Pat Riley has conversations with, Calipari about how Calipari is misusing his players in college so that then Pat Riley can get the upper hand on how to properly use them in the NBA. Mm. I I legitimately think there's a Kentucky relationship there. He does love Calipari. He does love Kentucky. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if the conspiracy should run that deep, but I mean, it it wouldn't surprise me. And, you know, funny enough, a guy like Tyrese Maxey might fall in the lower 20s. Uh, mm. He might be the point of attack defender that Miami needs. Just going to throw that out there. Mm. What pick What pick did Miami have in 2015? How did they not get Booker? Were they – they, is that the year they picked Winslow? Yes. Ooh. Winslow at 10. Never again, says Pat Riley, will I make that Correct. mistake. Nope. And that was the last Duke player that will ever play on the Heat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're going to take a quick break uh, for a uh, word from our sponsors. But when we come back, we're going to talk about, I don't know, some other stuff other that's going on in the basketball world. This is a limited upside podcast. The wait is finally over. Football is back. Holy crap, football is back? That, that really snuck up on me. Anyway, you might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get on, the, on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. 
You can get on, on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship features all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all those great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E, all one word. Bet online, your online sports experts. The Limited Upside Podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. And right now, Indeed is offering limited upside listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post. That means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Limit Upside Podcast. We're back. Ben Epstein, Nikias Duncan from Basketball News is our guest this week. And we're not talking a ton about the Lakers Nuggets series because uh, that game is um will maybe probably have happened when you listen to this. But I do want to quickly touch on like what from your perspective, Nikias, as someone who breaks down film, what what happened at the end of that game too? Whose fault was it on that Anthony Davis buzzer beater? Uh Mike Malone's. Okay. I think having Mason Plumley on the floor is your biggest issue there, because you either have him tracking Anthony Davis while Paul Millsap is on the block. I mean, is on the you know is on the court, which is not a great decision, or you have some switching action there, and Mason Plumley has shown you on multiple occasions that he isn't good at communicating those switches. Um, So I I think having Plumley on the court that, that falls on Mike Malone when you have a better defender sitting on your bench, a better defender, a more experienced defender, a more versatile defender, a more mobile guy that could have helped on that position. Are you talking about Paul Millsap or someone else? <laughs> I th- Yeah, I think Paul Millsap should have been on the, on the floor for that play. He was on the floor for that play. He wasn't even on the bench. And then he got taken out for Plumlee. That's the thing. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to work out whether, I mean, we, is it possible we're, we're, not giving the Lakers enough credit for this sort of thing where I, the reason I think about this is that it seems second nature. Cause we saw the shot go in that Anthony Davis was going to veer back and try to pull up. But if you like, didn't know the result, you would probably think that Anthony Davis would be going to the basket on that play. Right. So that, I mean, shouldn't we be giving Anthony Davis more credit or not? I mean, or, or am I being too nice to the nuggets? Uh, I mean, I guess it's a little bit of both. I would still say you're being a little too nice to the Nuggets. Like, I don't think 
I think in a vacuum, you will take Anthony Davis taking a, a moving three over LeBron cutting to the basket or AD trying to catch a lob. But he basically got a practice shot out of it just because of how it was played. And, I mean, he's a guy that can knock down that shot if you're just not going to get out on him. Like, Nikola Jokic shouldn't have been the guy that gets the close contest on that when he's doing jumping jacks in front of the inbound. <laughs> that was hilarious. Did you, did you see, like, what he was trying to do? Uh, the, the, no one in the NBA ever properly contests the inbounder. It's always like a mistimed jumping jack. Like that's not a good way to do anything. I see this constantly, by the way. Anytime a big like freaking Taco Fall did it on the Anobi shot, he's up there doing this. It's like wh- that's not how you do it. Just watch the guy's eyes and jump at the right time. Like you don't see D backs in the NFL just jumping constantly in the red zone. They try to time it. <laughs> Let's be I mean, real. What if they did though? They actually kind of. Isn't I mean I guess you'd have pass interference to worry about, but like 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 on goal line fades, like wouldn't it be better if like just the entire defensive line instead of rushing just jumped? Yeah, be I yeah, I, yeah. I guess in theory, yes, but guys do block passes down. I guess it's like well, number one, the fade is the most illogical play in football. Why throw a ball fifteen yards up in the air when you're within two yards of a goal line? But that's a whole different situation. The same way you don't pack the box when you know you're gonna run it. You want to spread players out like the end of the Seahawks Patriots game the other night. But this is not a football podcast. This is an NBA podcast. I, I do want to get into um one one question you guys had or we were talking about before the pod, which was that and this is why you two are perfect for this and for me to be the one asking the question so I can sit back. But the, the idea that we're not focusing enough of our attention on ba- on the on the games themselves, like on basketball, the the and we've talked to use the term X's and O's a lot, but the strategy behind what we're seeing right now in the league, how much praise coaches are getting, but that compared to how little maybe sometimes we're talking about the actual emphasis on what's happening between the lines of these games. And I'm wondering like, what are some trends right now that you're seeing between the four teams that are left? What makes these coaches most similar? Mike uh, Nikai, so what are what are things right now that have popped to you that you didn't even see in the regular season that are being brought into the fold right now specifically for the playoffs? Um, and, and talk a little bit about the, that heightened quality of basketball that you're seeing within the bubble, because that's certainly linking all four of these teams together. Um, you could even argue maybe the Nuggets more so than any of these teams raising their game on both ends. The Heat finding an, a, almost a, a super identity that we've talked about a little bit here. Um, and then again, the Celtics to have to iterate multiple times to get to where they are right now, just in these playoffs due to the difficulty of their series. Um, and then the Lakers making things look pretty, pretty easy for a LeBron playoff run in the grand scheme of his playoff runs in his career. So we'd love to hear more about how you guys think are thinking about like just the, the, the game itself being almost secondary to the world of the NBA being so properly and rightfully so valuable to the, to the uh, overall conversation of sports and culture, but talk a little bit more about what you're seeing right now, specifically in, in this X's and O's between the Lions game. Um, I would say my biggest takeaway just from the playoffs in general, I feel like we're starting to see the depth of drop defense. That's kind of the theory that I'm working with right now. Mm-hmm. Because I think what you saw in Devin Booker's 8-0 run and Damian Lillard's run is that those guys are just killing teams on pull-up jumpers from 28, 30, 32 feet from the basket. And it's just stressing big men to the point – I mean, you you can barely afford to have them out there unless they're – they don't have to be the quality of an Anthony Davis or a Bam Adebayo, but they have to be able to move their feet in a comfortable stratosphere or they just can't be on the court. So I think just – 
that has led to, I mean, the Heat switch a ton. They switched at a top five rate after the trade deadline. Boston switched a ton. Um, the Lakers-Houston series coming into it was supposed to be interesting just because of how Houston was going to have to try to navigate those switches and try to muck things up for the Lakers who had struggled in half-court offense up until that point. That was interesting. Um, the Lakers play with a center, but, I mean, they play with their guys a little higher up, especially when they do downsize with Anthony Davis at the five. Um, Toronto, one of the most, if not the most versatile defense in the sport. Just a bunch of teams, even Denver, they don't really do anything exotic, but they play their pick and roll so high. They blitz with Jokic, try to get his hands up in the pass lane and stuff like that. It's just pull-up shooting has become so important that it's kind of warped the game of basketball. And I think that's why you get into the later rounds, the Lakers are switching more stuff, and then they'll offer, they'll use those scram switches as well if you get a small on Nikola Jokic. Um, the Heat are switching a ton. Boston is switching a ton. The only team that isn't switching is Denver, and you've seen the kind of issues that they've had. I mean, on the last play of game of that game, a bot switch leads to an Anthony Davis jump. Mm-hmm. So I think teams. I mean, you have to look at that from. I mean, you got to look at what you're getting. Um, just look at what you're drafting moving forward. Like it's changing what you have to get from a big man. Like it's mobility is so important and versatility in general is so important now. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's definitely true. I mean, the key is that, I mean, we went to from an era where if you play drop coverage, which just for the lay people is essentially defined as your big man is kind of zoning up in the paint. Uh, that's generally, I mean, yeah, like they're very, yeah. yeah, like that's, that's a very, like very, very simple definition, but like, it's, let's just roll with that for now. Um, we, I remember back when Yao Ming and the Rockets were a really good defensive team. And the theory there is that the worst you're going to give up on draft coverage is a pull-up two-pointer, right? Like a mid-range, like a 18-foot clear look. That was kind of the main theory behind Indiana when they had those great battles with Miami. Maybe starting with the Warriors, that slowly became, oh, now you're giving up like a three-pointer. But nowadays, it's like, oh, now you're giving up a 30-footer that's, like, as good as a three-pointer. So it just keeps moving further and further and further out to the point where, I mean, I wrote about this in the newsletter, but just, like, that shot that Lillard hit against, uh, Damian Lillard hit against um, the Lakers in that game one, that was, like, the 40-foot bomb. And, like, the conversation we're having now is, wow, why were the Lakers playing drop coverage? It's, like, it sort of makes you realize, like, how much – the sport has spread out uh, that we're even having that conversation that, I mean, Anthony Davis is standing 26 feet from the hoop on that play. And he's still playing what is considered drop coverage because of the shooting range. And that's just remarkable. And it just shows how much the defense has evolved. The main takeaway I have is that these are four very different teams that have made it here with four very different styles of play. And, for all the talk about oh, the league is becoming too homogeneous, everyone's shooting threes, I think that the fact that these four teams are here and that they play their offense in such different ways around such different concepts illustrates to me that, and I want to link this back to the point that Ben was making about sort of coverage of the game versus coverage of other stuff. And I think the game itself, what, the main reason we don't see as much of anything is just the game is very complicated. It's very hard to explain. It's very hard to be to really know and so there's like kind of a deferral of expertise that happens where you know and and i think also just like a fear of being wrong 
Um, it's just like, you know, it's like why it's almost like asking, like, why don't trade magazines? Why do magazines not focus on like sort of technical trade secrets? Because it's there are only a few people that are really good at it. But I think one of the things, the consequences of that is that we spend a lot of time thinking about the outcomes of plays. Like, this is actually it's sort of what I wrote about with Las, the Las Vegas Aces on 538, who is a, a WNBA team that I know, Nakaias, you follow very closely. We focus so much on outcomes, like, is this a three? Is this a two? Is this a layup? That we have lost sight, and I think the bubble has regained this sight for us, of how it's so different. The way you create these shots could be so different and diversified. You've got one team that plays so much at the top of the key with movement off the ball in Miami, uh, or where so much of their action is at the three-point line, whirling durable handoffs and cutting action. You've got another team in Boston that is so heavy on the ball screen action, but it's at the top of the key, but it's a lot of swinging into the ball screen action for all their their players, a lot of pick and roll. You've got a Lakers team that I think is very much built around their two stars getting a mismatch of any kind. And then sort of what I sort of am calling like sort of decoy motion, like almost like misdirection with the other players, just sort of moving around a lot so that the defense is distracted by all that. And then the, the matchup advantages those two stars have come into play. And then you've got Denver who is built around a more traditional quote unquote setup of the high post big man, like flinging passers through with cuts. Um, and this is a massive oversimplification of all four, but it seems to me like there are, we have found four different ways to skin the cat in the modern game. And I think that's really cool, and I think that's something I wish we focused on a little bit more, is not how what the shots are, but how those shots come to be. Uh, because there, I think the fact that the game is played on a much larger plane allows for a much more stylistic diversity in that realm. And we sort of have lost sight of it because we focus so much on, oh man, three-point shots are going up. I guess just to push back a little bit, is the game of basketball complicated? Uh, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, and one I've like kind of been wrestling with as I've been starting this book, book process. Um, what I think is happening is that the game is both is super simple and super complicated, depending on how you look at it. The phrase I use a lot is that it's an individual sport and a team sport at the same time. You know, and it just depends on what you're looking at. What I think has become more complicated and more difficult for people to understand and grasp is that the game is now played on what is essentially a court that is basically one and a half times to more the size of the court of 20 years ago. Not it's not, The court is not literally expanded, but just the rise of three-pointers and deep three-pointers that has really happened over the last like seven years – has made it so that we're basically now have the same number of players playing a sport while using way more space of it. And so if you just think about that from a spatial perspective, if we're now using way more of the court than we used to, that means there's more for anyone to follow. There are more places for plays to start, plays to to end, plays to sort of tend to start and then end, places to go. And, and we're just using – there's just more options to be used on the court. And I think it's harder now than it was 20 years ago. Whether basketball is like a complicated sport compared to say football is sort of a whole nother discussion. 
Um, but I think that what's happened is that compared to what basketball was, it is a more complicated sport, you know, just because there are more places where things are happening. Well, and the optionality of skill sets is a big part of this as well. You can't do as much from a complicated set standpoint when players have very individual singular skill sets and the NBA was put quite literally just the idea of one, two, three, four, and five was because a one had a skill set, a two had a skill set, a three had a skill set, et cetera. And that's how they fulfilled their position on the court. When you remove that and you create more optionality between the individual players themselves, it creates uh, a larger threshold of opportunity. And and again, uh, again, XO options um, from a team standpoint as well, like this idea of a bam out of bio or, um, you know, or a Marcus Smart would have blown people's minds in 1987, right? Like, Marcus played play. differently, yeah. Well, yeah, but just like you know, I think I think no the real point is that a, a six I think, four center. I mean, I think the know? real point is that that would have blown people's minds in 2007. <laughs> totally, I think, yes, absolutely. I mean, we talked. Uh, Nikias, we did a lot of podcasting when there was no NBA and we got into, you know, Mike did a really extensive deep dive into uh, essentially the other eras of basketball. And one thing I did was watch uh, way too much uh, early 90s and and then again, early 2000s NBA. And yeah, I mean, yeah, the game itself has evolved an incredible amount, even just, again, I think part of it being what the Warriors did to the league and accelerating that was was pretty is pretty difficult to deny. Um, but, but ultimately like, yeah, the, the more that any individual player can do, the more that you can change up and be, you know, a diversified offense or defense or throw multiple sets with the same five, um, instead of, you know, like think about like the Spurs success for a number of years was predicated upon offense and then it flipped to defense, but none of their teams were the other way around. defense, defense, to offense. Yeah. I apologize. Defense to offense. But like none of those teams were in their same skin and offense and defensive team. The way that maybe a Miami is, or the Celtics yeah, are, or the Raptors that. are. I don't know about that, yeah. but 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 you don't think this is as complicated as we're making out to be, or are you just sort of curious? I'm kind of curious where where that question comes from. Um, it's a little bit of both because I I mean I do agree the game has obviously evolved. I mean there and as you said, there's more space, which means there are more actions that could be in more different places, and you know player archetypes have changed quite a bit. But I do feel like the goals of basketball. I mean. You know, at a basic level, you want to get the best shots available. You know, layups are good, are very high efficiency shots. Um, threes are more efficient than like long twos or whatever, whatever. We're not to get into the whole analytics debate or anything like that. But I do think the foundation of what the game is is simple. And I feel like just from a general standpoint, you know, you go deep, you go super deep in the X's and O's. I'm trying to get to that range. There are a lot of other guys, your Zach Lowe's, your Matt Morris, to understand more of like the X's and O's stuff. But I do think if there were more people that focused on or had the ability to kind of hammer home the foundations of what basketball really is and then building from there, I think we could kind of bring up the NBA audience or just the basketball audience in general, bring them up a level to where you can then dig into those deeper concepts easier. Because what I what I kind of see is that, you know, you, me, low guys like that, we're kind of like we're niche in that area where it's just a it's a very specific set of people that understand and love that content. And then the rest of it is how can LeBron catch MJ? And I feel like there's a, there's just this huge bridge that can there's just this huge gap that can be bridged between the two if we kind of focused on focused on the simple stuff and then brought it out. 
That is Kobe Bryant's argument as well, right? That is what Kobe was saying before he passed. You know that that that's and I, I hope you're right because then I could sell more books. But um, you know, <laughs> I I I see that. I agree with you. Like I think that there is more we can do, and it it does bug me when this sort of stuff is considered niche. I agree with you. Like to me, it's just storytelling in a different way, and I don't see why it has to be. You know, you have. To, I don't like the idea of being a film guy. To me, I'm just like, you know, the I, I'm seeing everything you're seeing, and I'm just like noticing we're noticing different things from it. But the, but like our job is to help you notice different things from it too. Um Yeah, no, I agree with you there. I mean, I think the I think you're right. Like the core of the game is not change and it's the way you get there that has, and we spend way too much time worrying about what the core of the game is with I think I I don't want to blame analytics because I think analytics are really cool, important to change our understanding of the game. But I think at its worst, sometimes we use that we we think of them less as like sort of means for further exploration of how you get there. I think that, I, I agree with you that generally how you get there is sort of undercovered in this league. Um, and I think it it hurts too that a lot of the people who are on TV about this league you're probably going to be harsher than them than I am because I know you've tweeted about this before. Um, but I just think in general, like with few exceptions, a lot of these guys just played in a different era and like they have trouble seeing how the game has changed in front of them. I think it's just natural, you know, you know what you know. And that's why I think someone like Draymond Green is an interesting breath of fresh air because here's someone who has more direct experience with how the game changed. And it's just, I mean, the concepts that these guys talk about that they know all the way, like, they just, it's just not the NBA that they played or coached in anymore. It's just a different league. I was going to say, coaching is the most, to players, yes. And I, I would expect the players who played in an era to be comparing the, the era they played in, for better or for worse, probably for worse here, to the game that they're watching. But the coaches who are doing the commentating, that's the ones I have the most difficulty with. It's like, you should either you're auditioning for a new job in some cases, and I won't name any names, uh, Stan Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, or, or, and you're showing that you're not picking mean, up on the way the game is played. You mean Jeff Van Gundy? No, I think Stan's auditioning. Okay. Well, we like Stan. Stan's yeah, good. I like, I, I like Stan too. I'm just saying as people who are auditioning for, for parts, right. But Stan Van Gundy's watching the game and being a little less hypercritical to the way that he also coached the team that played, you know, essentially a style of four guys out shooting threes and one big who was, you know, athletic and covered a lot of courts. He's a little more connected to the modern game than his brother in terms of the coaching. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't don't know. That's like my theory. I don't know, Nikaias, if you agree with me on that. I just, I think it's, it's just the game has changed and we don't know how to illustrate how it has and hasn't changed very well. Yeah, I mean, I think just at a very basic level, the way that you shift that is giving a voice to people that do understand how the game has changed. Uh, You mentioned like Stan Van Gundy has been great as a commentator, in my opinion, because he, you know, he'll still go to his his coaching platitudes or whatever, but he understands what teams are doing, what they're trying to get to, and is able to convey that in a way that's easy to understand. as you mentioned, Draymond Green, he's a guy, you know, I have been slamming inside the NBA for years now on Twitter. Just mm-hmm. because, I mean, you, it's an entertainment product and people accept it as an entertainment product. And it is entertaining at spots. But I also feel like the fact that inside the NBA is solely an entertainment show is an indictment of the show. Because in theory, you have guys that should be able to make you laugh, you know, do their general ridiculousness. 
but are also Hall of Fame level talents, Charles Barkley, Shaquille O'Neal, or, you know, guys that have been on championship teams, Kenny Smith, those should also be guys that understand what's happening in front of them and can convey that. You should be able to get both. And I think that's why Draymond Green has been so good because he can, he understands what's happening on the court. He's able to convey what's happening on the court in a way that someone that isn't super film intensive can understand. And he can talk junk, talk junk with the other hosts and have fun that way. Yeah. And I think you need a full cast of those guys to kind of get everyone on the same page. I don't want to tune into a TNT game and have to mute it for 98% of the broadcast because I don't know what, I don't know what Reggie Miller's talking about or when the halftime show comes up, I can't even focus on a ju- because Kenny Smith would do a video segment for 30 seconds. And it's stuff that I pointed out on Twitter and I haven't played in the NBA. <laughs> and the rest of the halftime show is Shaq saying, Hey, can you put up 40 and 20? Yeah. And it's, just, it, it's nothing. So I, I just feel like there, there has to be a better job and there has to be more emphasis on giving people voices that can kind of bridge the gap. The, the Anthony Davis segment the other day was just – I didn't watch that game live. I purposely didn't just because I wanted to see, like, for myself, like, is there anything there? No, it was such bullshit that be more aggressive. Like, he was pretty damn aggressive in that first half. I don't know what game they were watching. Um, and even if you make that point, too, like, you can explain, like, why someone is not as aggressive as they should be. Like, what is what is the problem? And, and – I think in general, like, it's always good to get some new blood into stale outfits. Like, you, you need new perspectives. Life evolves. You know, you, you need to be able to kind of recognize how things are changing. Um, so, and maybe, like, I mean, inside guys are super entertaining, but they've also been on TV for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, maybe you need – maybe Jermon Green, unfortunately, he has to go back and play basketball next year, so I don't know <laughs> how much we're seeing uh, of him. By the way, I've been, like, trying to connect this stuff for a newsletter, and I, like, can't do it. That's why I haven't had a whole lot of thought. I was thinking a little bit about um, the Warriors and their legacy as, like, this team that pushed through. And it seems to me like there's a piece of the Warriors in all four of these teams, but none of these teams have all of the Warriors, like – there's the split cuts and the high post stuff that Miami does with the movement. There's sort of the ball screen stuff that Boston does and the relocation threes that they take with Kemba Walker. There's like kind of Denver's also kind of a split cut team built around, I think, the high post passer, but also a team that like kind of gets cuts inside a lot. And then you have, well, how are the Lakers like the I don't know. Maybe the Lakers is where this breaks down a little bit. But I was just sort of thinking a little bit about um, – this it seems like the, there's like the legacy of the Warriors lives on in four teams separately in these conference finals. And maybe I'm, you know, as opposed to say like the legacy of a Houston where it's like kind of a more of a spacing team, like there's kind of like this like Phoenix, like the, the, I'm like talking junk right now, but whatever, that's what a podcast is for. Um, Phoenix, like the seven seconds are list team essentially broke off into two factions. There's the movement element of it that the Warriors copied, and then there's the spacing element that Houston copied. And the story of modern basketball is how those two things have drifted apart. Maybe I'm just talking junk. Does any of that make sense? Please tell me that my newsletter idea is good. (laughs) I don't know. It definitely makes sense. I would say, uh, just to your Lakers comparison, I would say maybe the way that the Lakers are using their guards as screeners, I mean, they create this, man. You know, 
Golden State did that more off ball just to kind of spring their shooters free or kind of open up those cuts. The Lakers are using their guards as screeners to get LeBron and Anthony Davis downhill, but I feel like there's at least a little bit of a comparison there. Yeah, and also Durant, when Durant was there, that was one way they used their screeners. So, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, anyway, last thought real quick. Um, I know game two of this series is Tuesday night, or I believe it is, um, but we're both been – followers of the Las Vegas Aces. You've been a fan of the Aces. I just thought they were really interesting the way they played. Um, game one didn't look so good. What the hell happened in game one? <laughs> uh, Jasmine Thomas happened. Uh, Jasmine Thomas happened, and Alyssa Thomas is just the best defender I've ever seen. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, the Aces just could not get comfortable. Like, I mean, you can't really account for Jasmine Thomas just hitting every three she takes. I mean, she's never been a high volume or a high accuracy three-point shooter. Um, she got a lot of those and kind of like transition looks um, and pick and roll. I mean, they smartly ducked under her picks and she just made them pay. So I don't think there's anything you can really do there. You mm-hmm. just have to kind of play better offense and keep Connecticut out of transition in those opportunities. But uh, yeah, did not look good. Um, Asia played well. Uh, beyond that, there just wasn't much of anything. So hopefully that completely turns in game two. Uh, I would like to see a competitive series. Yeah, I just think it'd be interesting if they won just the way they play. Angel McCautry, like, where, where was she in game one? They look they look like a team that was in a rhythm playing every other day and kicking, killing it, and then went off a week and forgot how to play. Would you describe Alyssa Thomas as, like, Bam Adebayo with two b- torn labrums? Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to help, like, kind of get people to realize, like, how cool she is on the court. I can, yeah, I can see that. Because, I mean, she, she's a brick wall, but she's also, like, a brick wall with wheels, I guess would be the best way to describe that. Like, she – I mean, there isn't a matchup that she's out of place in. Yeah. And she just has a way of body of just kind of bothering people's bases, especially, like, she – I mean, Asia ended up having a good game, but when they did get matched up on a few possessions, like, she made Asia uncomfortable. Like, she couldn't get to her spots. So, I think uh, – I feel like, yeah, Bam is probably an apt comparison there. Like Draymond Green, bam with Draymond Green's grab a go, uh, or Draymond Green if Draymond Green never shot a three pointer. Um, <laughs> I don't know. She's uh, she totally will dominate that game physically. Um, and I said on the WNBA preview podcast, watch out for the Connecticut Sun. I said it. There you go. I said no it. No John Jones. So yeah, but they uh, they still got four. They still have four great players. Well, who's who is the odds favorite to win? Seattle. Yeah. Okay. And they're the ones dealing with the potential virus outbreak. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good stuff. I believe actually, I think Seattle and Vegas were very close in the betting. I think actually Seattle, Vegas, and the Sparks, who had been knocked out, were knocked out by Connecticut, were pretty close, and everyone else was pretty trailing behind. Um, you think Seattle's going to win this thing? I mean, obviously, it depends on what the COVID situation was. But, you know, if if they were healthy, are they the favorite, you think? Or you you still think, like, on our last WMA podcast, Sabrina Merchant picked the Aces to win the title. Hmm. Uh, Connecticut is – I mean, not Connecticut, but uh, Seattle is just so darn good. And they're so deep. It's hard not to pick Seattle. Like, I'm going to be rooting for the Aces because, duh, I'm going to be rooting for the Aces. But – Seattle just has talent all over the place and they can play so many different styles. 
to where it uh, it's hard to pick against them, honestly. If they're healthy, they should win it again. Hmm. I hope the Aces win just because what a strange team they are. What a fascinating team. I, I read about this on 538, but just they are taking 11 threes a game this year, and the next lowest team I think is 17 threes a game. Um, relative to league average, they're like the fifth least least prolific three-point shoot attempt team in the league. Um, and it's also, it's just, it's fascinating to see. And uh, they have some really interesting players. Like, De'Erica Hamby is like if Marcus Smart was a big. <laughs> big part. She yeah. She's fantastic. Uh, she's quite fun to watch. And, uh, well, yeah. She started, but I'm not going to, I'm not going down that rabbit, that rabbit hole. Which rabbit hole? Uh, oh, she should start. Yes, yes. We're not going to do that. Um <laughs> The uh, the Aces playing the equivalent of Anderson Verjao in the starting lineup. <laughs> uh, it's if Anderson Verjao retired after the 2016 finals and then came back. And started. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. Um, ben, any final thoughts on uh, the series and the the NBA or WNBA playoffs? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, um, I'm just – Honestly, I'm looking forward to see. And again, I'm, I apologize for not being as in depth on the WNBA as, as you guys. I catch, generally speaking, I watch the finals and, and games that Mike suggests that I watch or teams that I suggest that I check out. But uh, I'm I'm really excited to see how Denver rebounds. I kind of feel like they've had one gut check after another. This entire, not to be like super again platitude related and like you know the, the cliches, but there's a big difference between being split one one in a series. And in winning a game two in a way that um, I think would have maybe pretended well to the way that the rest of the series moves and losing on a puzzle. Um, and so excited to see it in a lot of ways. It feels like they're at another game seven right now in game three. Um, so pumped to see how Denver looks tonight. Um, and, and ultimately like this is an incredibly important game. They're not going to win in game seven if they go down three Oh, against the Lakers here, uh, but there could still be a series left if they do. win. And then the second thing is, um, you know, I thought the Celtics have been the better team in this series for like uh, maybe, I don't know, 14 quarters or whatever, 12. Where are we at? It's 2-1 now, so 12 quarters. or You're saying something. all the quarters, all the first and third quarters? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Like, okay. Yeah, the first thirds and like nine quarters. Yeah, nine quarters. Yeah, so like a good chunk of this of these first three games, like the Celtics have been the better team and they're down 2-1. So I, I still think that there's a – if I'm betting, I might be betting on them to win the series. Um, I thought it was going seven prior. I feel that even more now. But but I, I do think that tomorrow night's game, again, I think it's going to be a tighter game. I think maybe that some nerves will be in effect because it really is, uh, again, the Celtics playing a full-fledged game. I think they win, but I think the Heat might, might come out tomorrow night, again, as uh, Nikias kind of talked about assert themselves slightly differently. Uh, and I'm very curious to see if they can turn the first quarter momentum around and change the complexion of the way that these games have been moving. Cause they've all kind of followed the same formula uh, and similar formula usually works better for the team that's up to one than the team that's down to one, despite the fact that Celtics have probably been a better team for more of the, the overall time of the series, but I have to bounce guys. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to talk to you. I'll let Mike wrap this up. Um, and, and uh, ultimately, thank yeah. you for I got nothing else. I'm just uh, I don't know, Kai's view or anything else. But um, no, nah, man, I I, uh, I got nothing else, man. This is uh, whoever wins Game Four is winning this series. That's not exactly a crazy statement, but I just think that's I 
I say I say it a lot. Game four is in a two one best series, best game of a series always. Well, not always, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I can feel that. Um, so I think it was Jay Crowder that said Miami had some big adjustments coming in Game Four. <laughs> I but, saw that. <laughs> like it's 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 funny because like normally that's just player speak, but also Eric Spolster will be the guy that throws out some randomness. So I'm really interested to see exactly what these adjustments are going to be. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm interested to see what the series looks like um, with this big of a layoff. I think we're going to see more Gordon Hayward in Game Four, which is obviously going to be huge. Um, Gordon Hayward's biggest impact in Game Three was not being Simi Ojale. Mm. So I think that's 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 a huge deal. Uh, that's also part of why Miami zone worked as well in Game Two. I mean, when they go to those looks and you have basically a non-threat on the floor, it makes it easier to kind of load up on the side if they need to. They can't really do that with Gordon Hayward in the game. So it's going to be. I'm going to be interested to see just how much zone Miami decides to play. Because if Hayward plays more and he's, you know, making quick decisions, which Boston has sorely missed in the first couple of games, it's going to be tougher. And if they go to more man principles, then we're going to see just how big of a liability Goran Dragic is. Um, they're going to hunt him out. They're going to hunt out Duncan Robinson. They're going to hunt out Tyler Hero. Uh, we're just going to have to see how Miami manages on the defensive end. It's going to be interesting. Mm. Yeah, no, it should be fascinating. Uh, so the key to the game then is to turn Gordon Hayward into semi Ojale. There you go. Yes. Um, I don't know, maybe the, the disguise or something. I wonder how they do that. <laughs> um, he's Nikias Duncan. He's with uh, basketballnews.com. He's terrific. If you don't follow him already, you really should. Nobody, rising star in this industry, breaks down the game super well. Uh, ben is gone, but uh, we'll be back next week. Probably for, I mean, the NBA Finals are coming up next week. Jeez. Uh, so LeBron against his former team. I look forward to it. <laughs> um, I hope that's the case. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been uh, – we're signing off here. This has been the Limited Upside Podcast. Yeah.